Welcome to Nerd Heaven. I'm Adam David Collings, the author of Jewel of the Stars, and I am a nerd. This is episode 23 of the podcast. Today, we're talking about Star Trek Generations. Generations had a lot of hype to live up to. Not only was it the first appearance of the Next Generation crew on the big screen, it featured the long-anticipated meeting between Captains Picard and Kirk. But it was going to be one of the infamous, odd-numbered Star Trek movies. So, could it live up to the hype? What did you think of this movie when it first came out? My overall experience with it was a positive one. And yet, I found myself rewriting it in my head, coming up with alternate stories. Let's see how it stands up. The description on Memory Alpha reads, Two captains, one destiny. In the late 23rd century, the USS Enterprise B is on her maiden voyage, and Kirk is no longer in the captain's chair. The ship must rescue Elorian refugees from a mysterious energy ribbon, but the rescue seemingly costs Kirk his life. 78 years later, one of the Elorian survivors leads the crew of the Enterprise-D into a deadly confrontation with the Duras sisters, as he plots to re-enter the paradise of the ribbon that nearly destroyed him years prior. The screenplay was written by Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga. The story was by Rick Berman and Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga. It was directed by David Carson, and it first appeared in cinemas on the 18th of November, 1994. Make it so! The opening credits were reasonably effective for this movie. I quite like the musical score that Dennis McCarthy created for Generations. Not as memorable as Goldsmith's score for First Contact, but better than what he did on the TV show. I remember watching the names go by. I knew Kirk was going to be in this movie, but I didn't know if anyone else from TOS would appear, so I was very excited when James Doohan and Walter Koenig's names appeared. The bottle of champagne floating through space makes you think of the Chateau Picard wine, suggesting that we're starting in the 24th century. So the reveal of the Enterprise 1701B was a shock. I nearly wet myself when I saw those original series Wrath of Khan uniforms. I love how this movie starts in the 23rd century. It feels like it picks up straight after Star Trek VI. And that's what I really wanted, to start in familiar TOS movie era and then transition to the next generation. It's not surprising that they got the TOS movie aesthetic spot on, because a lot of the same people who worked on TNG worked on the later TOS movies. The presence of the news reporters was conical. We'd never seen anything like that in the Star Trek universe, but it made sense to me that by this point in time, the name Enterprise was so famous that the media would be present at the launch of a new ship with that name. And the TV-style reporters felt like it fit in a little bit better in the 23rd century than it did in the 24th. Still, I cheered when Kirk told the reporter to turn that damn thing off. John Harriman gets a lot of flack for being a pathetic captain. But I've always maintained that most of the problems were because he was completely unequipped. Starfleet sent him out without half his crew, and half of his equipment was non-functional. 
I don't blame Harriman for that. The ship was doing a publicity flight. They weren't even supposed to leave the solar system. And yes, he's a little green, and sometimes hesitates, but he doesn't have the decades of experience that Kirk has. And what I really like about him, when the moment comes, he swallows his pride and asks for Kirk's assistance. He doesn't have many resources, so of course he should use the one resource he does have, Kirk's experience. In my head canon, I'd like to think that Harriman went on to be a great captain, worthy of the legacy of Kirk and Pike. And I love that they used the TOS movie warp effect and view screen sound. Those are the little details that a non-fan wouldn't even notice, but they mean so much to me. It's noticeable that these scenes are being written by TNG writers. The dialogue is particularly TNG sounding, specifically in relation to the use of Technobabble. The CGI effects for the Nexus ribbon look awesome. Even today, it stands up as a really cool looking effect. The use of Elorian refugees fleeing the Borg was a pretty cool idea, and the brief appearance of both Soren and Guinan on screen during this part of the movie is important because it ties it in to the main 24th century section. I assume that most people listening will be aware that the script was originally written for Spock and McCoy, not Scotty and Chekhov, which is why Chekhov is suddenly running sickbay. This kind of works for me because I can believe that as a former security chief and first officer, he'd have some medical training. But his line, you and you, you just became nurses, sounds very much like a McCoy line. When Harriman gives Kirk the bridge, I like how he hesitates for just a minute, savouring the chance to sit in the captain's chair, before realising that's not his place. It also makes sense that Harriman was going to go. He feels pretty useless on the bridge of his ship right now, especially with Kirk there. But Kirk sees potential, maybe even some familiarity in the young man, telling him that his place is on the bridge of his ship. And then the ribbon hits, blowing Kirk out into space. And just like prophesied in Star Trek V, he died alone. Okay, maybe prophesied is too strong a word. I knew this couldn't be the last we see of Kirk. I knew he shared screen time with Picard in the trailer. Still, as Scotty and Chekhov raced to Deck 15, I held my breath. No, it couldn't be. They couldn't let Kirk die. I still felt that loss. Of course, we have a continuity problem here. Because when Scotty beamed aboard the Enterprise D in the episode Relics, he said, I bet Captain Kirk has come out of retirement. It's hard to know how to fix that. And then we jump forward 78 years into the future. And this is a little jarring because it starts off on a sailing ship on the holodeck. If you weren't familiar with the next generation, you'd be really confused by this. Worf is definitely due the promotion, having served on the Enterprise D for seven years, over six as security chief. And I like that they would celebrate an event like this on the holodeck. This is the kind of sequence we'd never have had on the TV show. And it looks great in its widescreen, high-definition glory. I found the attitudes of the crew quite hypocritical in this scene. When Riker removes the plank, 
plunging Worf into the cold water, everyone laughs. Crusher says it's all in good fun. But when Data pushes Crusher in, everyone is horrified. And Crusher, who advised Data to live in the moment and have some fun, is angry at him. What? Maybe I'm too much of an android myself, but I don't see the difference. We don't know what's in the message Picard gets, but Patrick Stewart sells it very well with his acting. We know something terrible has happened. This movie has a very different visual look to it than the TV shows. They're very close to a star, so there's an orange tint to everything, including the exterior shots of the Enterprise and the inside of the ship, that orange light coming through the windows. And I really like this. It looks fantastic, and it reminds us that this isn't a TV show anymore. It gave the whole thing a more cinematic look that I really appreciated. Also, I love the new comm badges. Keeping the old uniforms helped give us something familiar to hold on to, but changing the comm badges showed that we've moved into a new era. Picard is already showing clear signs of some kind of emotional trauma. Troy is sensing it. Not that she really needs empathic abilities for that, but I love the look on her face. Nice non-verbal acting from Marina Sirtis. The transporter beam effect has been changed for the movie. Similar enough that it's not too jarring, but different enough that it feels more... movie-ish. And we see Soren's face peeking through the rubble. We see our first connection between these otherwise very disparate stories. They do a great job with the dead Romulan of making it realistically gory, but with green blood instead of red. Green blood is something that could easily come across as cheesy, but here it doesn't. So, given his failure to understand humour, and Crusher's reaction to his attempt, which I don't blame him for because I don't understand it either, Data has decided to install the emotion chip that Dr. Sung created for him, which he got from Law at the end of the episode Descent. The chip suddenly looks a lot bigger than when we last saw it. In Descent, Data didn't install the chip because he was worried that his emotions might lead him to harm others. His friendship with Geordie was too important to him. In this movie, his reason for not having used it until now is a fear that it might overload his neural net. I understand the need to not ask too much of an audience in a movie. They want to sell as many tickets as possible. They don't want to rely on people having seen every episode of the TV show. I make this work in my head by saying that there were two reasons Data didn't use the chip. Geordie mentions the technological one because he is an engineer responsible for Data's maintenance, and because honestly, he had more faith in Data's humanity than even Data does. So this is one of those controversial elements in the movie. Some people didn't like the addition of emotions to Data. Some just found his behaviour after installation to be extremely annoying. Michael Piller lamented the chip when he came to write Insurrection. He liked the Pinocchio aspect of Data's character and thought it a shame that movie audiences never got to see that side of Data. To me, personally, I'm a fan of character development. I hate it when writers chain themselves to the status quo. 
I like the worlds in my stories to change, and the people that inhabit those worlds to change even more so. So in my opinion, this was a good time for Data to install the chip, to take his character to the next level. Picard's Ready Room and Ten Ford both look awesome with that new lighting. I love it. So Data tries a drink offered to him by Guinan. This is the first example of his odd behaviour with the chip. I will admit that Data does get a little annoying in this movie, especially when he's cracking jokes and laughing maniacally on the station. But, but even this works for me. Data is new to emotions. He has no idea how to deal with them. Can you imagine suddenly a lifetime of emotions related to all your memories suddenly flooding into your system? I don't think I'd handle them any better than Data does. Imagine experiencing fear for the first time. It would be crippling. Yeah, in my opinion, this stuff is all very nicely done. Data's jokes are not supposed to amuse us. They certainly don't amuse Geordie. We're seeing the whole thing through Geordie's eyes. So apparently Elorians have some mild telepathic abilities. Soren is able to see Picard's pain. He senses it is related to fire and burning. He understands that Picard is struggling with issues of regret and things not done. This makes it very easy for him to manipulate Picard into allowing him onto the station. I can buy that Elorians have these kinds of senses. It's probably what gives them the reputation for being such good listeners. You'll notice that over the course of this movie, the crew slowly transition from the traditional TNG uniforms to the newer DS9 Voyager uniforms. And this makes sense to me because this is a time of uniform transition. I wonder if there are any rules or guidelines regarding when they should wear particular uniforms. Now we come to one of the most powerful scenes in the movie. Picard is looking through his family photo album and Troy comes in to see him. This is a wonderful character scene for both of them. I love this scene because it gives Troy the chance to actually matter, something that didn't really happen in any of the other TNG movies. Troy actually gets to be a counsellor. We learn that Picard's brother Robert and his nephew René have tragically burned to death in a fire. This is heartbreaking to hear. Doubly so because we met these characters back in the fourth season episode, Family. Patrick Stewart's acting in this scene is absolutely phenomenal. This scene is the thematic and emotional heart of the movie. I've heard it said that the theme this movie is trying to explore is essentially a copy of the ageing theme in Star Trek 2. But I see a lot of difference between the two. In Star Trek II, Kirk was basically having a midlife crisis, filled with the regret of the loss of the glory days, feeling like he could never get those days back again. Picard's experience is very different. Picard never lost his glory days. He's living the dream right now. He's the captain of the Enterprise. Picard's issue is all about legacy. Yes, Picard is aware that he is ageing, that there are fewer days ahead than they are behind, as he puts it, but that doesn't bother him so much. He takes comfort in his family legacy. The family will go on. And René is very much like Jean-Luc. 
he is the closest thing Jean-Luc has to a child of his own. And to Jean-Luc, that is quite enough. He is content with that. But now, that legacy has been stolen from him. I'm sure there are other members of the Picard family alive. Cousins, second cousins, extended family. But the line of Maurice Picard, of Robert and Jean-Luc, that is gone. And there is no longer any hope that this can be changed. Time has been cruel to Picard. It has taken away his hopes for the future. I love that this film, with everything else that's packed into it, still takes the time to explore some weighty emotional issues with its characters. Well done, I say. Well done. And I love the transition from Picard talking to the sudden implosion seen through the window. Having spoken with Troy, Picard is able to switch his professionalism back on. So, a nice touch, Soren is working with the Duros sisters, rogue Klingons. This is cool because it allows the movie to have a familiar, traditional bad guy, the Klingons, that fans of the original series and movies would be familiar with, even though in this time the Klingons are our allies. To fans of TNG, these are familiar, popular characters. To other viewers, they're just Klingons who are clearly meant to be villains. It works on both levels. The actors that portray Lursa and Bator do a great job of portraying their characters in this movie. I like that little moment when Soren waves his hand in front of his face, suggesting that the Klingons don't smell so good. Just a little bit of visual storytelling. Crusher identifies Soren's past and figures out Guinan likely knows him, since she was on the Lakul with him back when Kirk rescued them. But why is Crusher doing biographical research on him? I guess it gives us something to do with the movie. Anyway, this is handy because Guinan is able to give Picard more information on his enemy. I like Guinan's quarters. They look kind of exotic. Lots of candles. I've always liked the character of Guinan, and in this movie, Whoopi Goldberg shows us a rarely seen vulnerable side of the character. Strangely, Goldberg is not credited in this movie. I wonder why. I always have. The Enterprise-D model that flies by is, I believe, the same model used for the TV show. And yet, in this shot, it seems weightier. It feels like a big, heavy ship. Is it the camera used to shoot it? The widescreen aspect ratio? I'm not sure. The new stellar cartography set is really cool those massive screens that encircle them. I remember feeling quite impressed by it when I first saw the movie. This scene pulls double duty. It is an exposition scene where they find out what Soren's plan is, but at the same time, it does some really nice character stuff with Data and Picard. Both of them are struggling with their emotions. Picard just has a little more experience to draw on than Data does. It's good stuff. Speaking of Soren's plan, it's a bit dumb, but we'll come to that a bit later. I understand why the Duras sisters are willing to exchange Geordie for Picard, even if Picard is beamed down to Soren's location. They want to use his visor to spy on the ship, so they can destroy it. But why doesn't Picard suspect their surprising agreement? Viridian 3 looks amazing. 
This was all shot at the Valley of Fire State Park. And man, it looks awesome. Especially shot with the cinema cameras and rendered in high def on Blu-ray. Such rugged beauty, so exotic and alien looking. I can't say enough good about this location, it's fantastic. So Sauron is willing to destroy two stars and at least one entire planet populated by people just to divert the Nexus Ribbon to a place where he can enter it. When Picard asks why he doesn't just fly into it with a ship, Data's excuse is that any ship that has approached the Ribbon has been destroyed or damaged. Soren says his plan is the only way. But we know this isn't true. Yes, Soren's ship might be destroyed, but he'll still end up in the Nexus. We'll shortly have proof of that when we see Kirk in the Nexus. He was blown out into space and sucked into the Nexus by the ribbon. Pleasantly, that means all those Lakul survivors that Scotty couldn't save also end up in the Nexus. That's nice. The whole thing comes across as a bit convoluted. I understand the writers of this movie were under extreme time pressure, so I can understand why this is what they came up with but I do acknowledge that doesn't really work for me. But what does work is the character stuff between Picard and Soren. I like how Picard calls back to the Borg. Soren's perspective is almost convincing. We're all gonna die sometime anyway, so is it really so bad that I make it happen a little earlier for a few people so I can experience an eternity of joy? The Duros sisters plan is kind of clever and works for me. They've modified Geordie's visor to transmit what he sees, and they see the shield mutation frequency on a panel. That allows them to get through the Enterprise shields and actually inflict damage. But this leads into what I consider to be the first really big negative in this movie. This battle between the Enterprise and the Bird of Prey is pretty weak, and honestly, not a great way for our beloved ship to go down. It always struck me as silly that the Enterprise takes shot after shot through its shields, yet they get one single torpedo hit on their bird of prey, and the whole thing blows up. The whole sequence feels very weak and pathetic. The biggest issue, as others have pointed out before me, is that it's all solved with Technobabble. If you want to go into more detail on this, just listen to the YouTuber LawRunner rant about this scene. And do you notice that the shot of the Bird of Prey exploding is a recycled shot from Star Trek VI? I did, even back in the day. The budget must have been really tight for them to have done that. Although, in the director's commentary, David Carson talks about watching them shoot the destruction of the Klingon ship. So, I'm not sure what to make of that. And so the writers decide to do what had only been done once before. They're going to destroy a much-loved Starship Enterprise. It made sense to do this. Firstly, it added a a bigger, more intense emotional stake to the movie. They'd never have done this in the TV show. But more importantly, it allowed them to make a new Enterprise for subsequent movies. Remember, these sets were created back in the 80s for a standard-definition TV show. They did some good stuff in this movie to make the Enterprise-D look good on the big screen, but the Enterprise-E was made for the big screen. And as I said in my first Contact podcast, 
it looked fantastic. Sadly, the destruction of the Enterprise D was done very badly. It lacks the thematic and emotional resonance that the destruction of the original Enterprise had in Star Trek 3. It is lost because of a battle that they should have won with a silly little old bird of prey. However, after the loss of the Star Drive section, the whole battle thing is redeemed, in my opinion, by a truly amazing sequence as the saucer section crashes onto Viridian 3. Now, first off, let me say that Data's swear word got a lot of audible laughter from the theatre when I was first watching this movie. And yes, I laughed too. The crash landing looks amazing. Seriously, I could just watch this sequence all day long. It's spectacular. The Enterprise has never felt so big, so weighty. The way it cuts through the trees and scoops up dirt from the surface of the planet... Man, I can't say enough good things about it. I love it. It blew me away in the cinema, and it still blows me away now. This may just be the best visual sequence out of any Star Trek movie. And then, after all the fireworks, we have that silent moment, as Troy tells Data that she's okay, and the sad music starts to swell, as we come to fully realise that the Enterprise, our Enterprise is gone. So Picard tries to stop Soren, but he fails. The probe is launched, the star is destroyed. While it doesn't make sense for the sky to dim so immediately, it is a beautiful visual image of the ribbon travelling through a near sunset sky. And then when the shockwave hits Viridian 3, we get another cool visual, the destruction of Viridian 3 which honestly rivals the destruction of Vulcan in Star Trek 2009. This next bit is a little disorienting, but it doesn't take a genius to figure out that Picard is in the Nexus, and he is living out his greatest fantasy. Picard is married and surrounded by a big bunch of kids. It's a shame his wife is just a random nobody rather than Beverly Crusher but I do note that Picard's wife looks somewhat similar to Crusher. This all ties in thematically with Picard's terrible loss and the stuff he talked about with Troy. As Picard looks at the Christmas tree, he sees what appears to be an exploding star on one of the Christmas baubles. I always assumed that this was an image of Viridian 3 exploding, that it was the Nexus's way of reminding Picard of what it had cost for him to be here in this paradise. Kind of a nasty, passive-aggressive jab to prick his conscience. This would also imply some intelligence behind the Nexus. While all this seemed super obvious to me, apparently not everyone thought so, as there have been discussions online about what this is all about. So what do you think? The sudden appearance of Guinan doesn't entirely make sense. The whole concept of an Echo, a part of herself she left behind, isn't well developed and not that well explained. But it serves as a mechanism for some exposition and introduces us to the fact that Kirk is alive and well, after all this time, in the Nexus himself. Picard is apparently able to travel from his own fantasy into Kirk's fantasy. So finally, after all these years, we get to see Kirk and Picard 
share the screen together. It's not exactly the setting we might have hoped it would be, but it was still exciting to see them together. It's a shame they invented the woman Antonia, instead of using Carol Marcus, who it should have been. We can speculate that this moment in Kirk's life takes place sometime between the motion picture and Star Trek II. There's quite a period of time there where Kirk wasn't happy with his career. I can imagine he left Starfleet for a time, and then decided to return, even if it meant resuming his former position as an admiral. Unlike Picard, Kirk is fully embracing this fantasy. I don't think the movie has given us enough background to what he's dealing with. Picard's character arc in this movie works. Kirk's, not so much. At this point in the movie, my feelings are that I liked what we got, but I would have loved something different. Kirk never gets to see the Enterprise-D. He never gets to meet any of the rest of the crew. I would have liked to see Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise-A come face-to-face with the crew of the Enterprise-D. I would have liked to see those two crews work together. Of course, bringing together that many characters would have been a challenge, and would have given few of them a satisfying role. Generations was put together quickly, and I believe the writers Ronald D. Moore and Brennan Braga weren't entirely happy with it themselves. There's no doubt that with more time for writing, this movie could have been something much greater. But there's still a lot to like in what we actually got. So Kirk quickly realises that nothing in the Nexus matters. He gives Picard a speech about never leaving the bridge of his ship, and they return to Viridian 3, just before Soren destroyed the star. It seems silly that they didn't give themselves more time. They could have chosen anywhere, anytime. Now that the writers had brought Kirk into the 24th century, they had to decide what to do with him. It wouldn't have made much sense to send him back and rewrite all of that established history. They could have left him alive in this new time period, and at the time, I was in favour of that. But over time, I've come to agree that it made good sense to kill Kirk in the climax of this film. But is Kirk's death fitting? Hmm, not entirely. But I don't think it's as bad as some people make out, either. First, let's acknowledge that it was originally much worse. Before they showed this to test audiences, they had Kirk shot in the back by a dying Soren after remarking that the 24th century isn't so tough. Obviously, that was not just a terrible idea, but an insulting one. They wisely went back and reshot this sequence with a new death, in which Kirk has to risk his life to get the control pad. I've heard some people say that they think Kirk should have died aboard the Enterprise in space. But I don't know. This seems a very Kirk way to die. Kirk was always beaming down to rocky planets like this and getting into fistfights. It seems fitting that this would be the way he would die. So, I'm with it. It was still sad to see Picard bury his predecessor, realising that we'd never again see James T. Kirk. Kirk's moment of death is extremely well acted by William Shatner. Possibly his best acting moment. And the music does its job well here too. So, 
Having experienced 261 distinct emotional states, Data is beginning to learn how to control his emotions, rather than allow them to control him. Which of course makes perfect sense. The Data we'll see in the next movie will be less annoying and more human. Good character development. Until Insurrection and Nemesis mess it all up. But those tears? Uh, that was silly, and it didn't work for me. As Picard rummages through the ruins of his office, looking for his photo album, he tosses something over his shoulder, showing complete disregard for it. This was terrible. This object had tremendous scientific and archaeological significance, not to mention huge emotional significance, as it was given to him by his old mentor, Professor Galen. That really annoys me. So, that was Star Trek Generations. Despite its flaws, I really like this movie. And I hope you've enjoyed revisiting it with me. So, that was Star Trek Generations. You know, there's actually only one Next Generation movie that we haven't talked about on the podcast yet. And that, of course, is Insurrection. So, I will be doing an episode about that at some point in the reasonably near future. Now, of course, if you like Star Trek, don't forget uh, my series of books, Jewel of the Stars, is uh, very Star Trek-y in nature. It's actually about a cruise ship in space uh, on the run from an alien armada after Earth has fallen to an invasion. You can actually read the entire first episode uh, completely for free now by going to Wattpad and searching for Jewel of the Stars by Adam David Collings. Or you can pick it up in uh, any ebook format from the, all the major retailers for 99 cents. And it is also available in paperback. Well, next episode, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. I'm going to be talking about the movie Stargate Origins, Catherine. So I'll see you for that in two weeks' time. Live long and prosper. Make it so.